0: Okay, welcome back to Art Holes. My name is Michael Anthony, and this is the podcast about art and art history with someone who has absolutely no authority to speak on these topics. I'm putting it up front because I know I'm going to forget later. Uh, you can reach me at Art Holes Podcast on Twitter and Instagram, and that's where I'm going to be posting all of the art for this episode as well. Uh, and you can reach me at artholespodcast at gmail.com if you have any questions, uh, want to yell at me, or have any good suggestions for any artists to cover. But right now, you're here for Jackson Pollock. So let's get right back into it. At the end of our last episode, we learned that the Pollocks purchased a fruit farm that lacked the requisite functionality of being able to grow fruit, and Leroy drank his way through most of the process. All of the Pollock kids were divided into high and low steps, uh, except for Frank. Frank doesn't get a step group. And the family is under constant pressure to survive, and all Jackson's doing is getting in everybody's way, and his entire family is just ignoring him. And of course, eventually the fruit farm, it eventually ran to ground because the soil was just completely busted. And the Pollocks sold the fruit farm for a loss and packed everything they had and they moved to Jansville, California, which was about 120 miles northeast of Chico. Now, if you thought Stella had any intention of buying another farm in Jansville, you do not know Stella. The days of Stella being a farmer's wife are over. Instead of a farm, the Pollocks bought a hotel. Guys, they're hoteliers now. They bought the hotel for $10 down and a $6,000 mortgage due in six years. So let's take a second and talk about those purchase terms. Look, I am not a finance guy, but I think if you can buy a hotel for that amount down and with that mortgage and those repayment terms, that is not a good sign. The bank has absolutely no faith in you and they're trying to fuck you on the back end with the inevitable default. They're just trying to get about 15 payments out of you before they take back their shit. The hotel purchase was, that was pushed by Stella, and I, and I think that's obvious. Being a hotel owner was much more what Stella wanted out of life than being a farmer's wife. And you know what? I'm going to go on the record and say that's a pretty fair trade-off. Because it's 1918. The 19th Amendment, which provides universal suffrage and protects women's right to vote in the United States, two years away. She doesn't even have the constitutional right to vote, so maybe Stella's feeling a little oppressed in these circumstances. But I also think it's probably a little bit harder to run a hotel than just buying it for near usury rates. So while I'm supportive of her taking control of the situation, this is a dumbass decision. And at this point in our story, Jackson is still not developing any communication or coping skills, and his parents treat him like he's something to just be kept alive. When stuff goes wrong, there's no one to teach him any lessons, no one to instill values or common sense. Instead, he just draws deeper and deeper inside where it's safe. Charles and Marvin slash Jay are old enough to see that this is not going to go well, and they're not going to wait around to see how this leveraged hotel situation pans out. So they tell Leroy and Stella that when the family moves, they're staying in Chico. And once that dam is cracked, this is where the family starts to drift apart. The rest of the Pollock family packs up their hillbilly shit and they go check out their new hotel in Jansville, California. And just like they forgot to check about the soil quality in the fruit farm, Stella and Leroy didn't check into the hotel occupancy rates, its business viability, or even whether Jansville was worth a shit as a town turns out, Jansville is not worth the shit as a town, and is an awful place to live. It had terrible weather in the winter, no one came through there, and the town was full of a bunch of assholes. It was an awful, awful town. One of the Pollock's neighbors was a cattle thief. Like, that was the guy's job. Cattle thief. When Sandy, Jackson, and Frank went to the school, it was said to be more of a battleground. One student gave a little sass to the teacher, Mrs. Drake, so she threw him on the ground and savagely beat him with a history book. And Leroy, we're going we're to call this another Napoleonic-style exile, because he wasn't doing much around the hotel except for taking extended timeouts in the basement or barn to drink a bunch. He was really mad at Stella for choosing a life that rendered him useless. I think it's easy to forget that Leroy has been a full-time farm laborer since he's like 10 years old. When you transition from child to farmer at 10, it's a hard transition out in your 40s. As much as Stella's always been a mother, Leroy has always been a laborer. He's never known anything different. He's now getting into drunken rages and taking it out on the boys. One time he grabbed a a curved piece of, like, a broken barrel and just beat the holy hell out of Frank, Sandy, and Jackson with it, because who the hell knows why. So we went from farm family to shitty hotel owners in a town full of criminals, and now Leroy's just beating the shit out of his kids and his drinking is out of control, and then one day... No one's really sure exactly the date because Stella was very cagey about the details in public, but we're looking at between 1920 and 1921, Leroy leaves for a job. He goes off under the guise of working with construction or a road crew, but, but everyone knows that he's never coming back. This is the moment where Leroy Pollock abandons his family. And I think what happened here was Leroy always understood a father to be the one who provides financially for the family, and as long as he's doing that, he doesn't have to deal with any of the other stress or pressures. So as long as he sends back money, in his mind, he's still being a father. But now that Stella's alone with the kids, she can't keep up with the hotel, so she has to sell it. And her and Frank, Sandy, and Jackson, they all move around for a while. So let's orient ourselves on on where everyone is right now. I know this is super confusing. Uh, At this point, Charles moved from Chico to Los Angeles to pursue art commercially. And Jackson, who all he wants to do is emulate his oldest brother, he thinks this is just the coolest thing. Marvin slash Jay, he's also living in LA right now. And Frank leaves to do some kind of nonsense. Nobody really cares because it's Frank. And then he comes back. Frank very much has some middle child stuff happening right now. He's in and out of the picture at this point. And then Stella decides to pack up the low-step kids into a car and move back to Arizona. I have no idea why. I just think Stella thought momentum was a good thing no matter where it was. Leroy also went to Arizona, but still wasn't with the family. He was just sending them money and kind of living nearby. And I'm not advocating abandoning your family. But if you do, if we're already in that camp, you should probably move far away. Because otherwise you're just saying, my life is otherwise fantastic, except for you kids. And a kid should never believe that you like your hometown better than you like them. Move the fuck away. Jackson did still have Jip, though, so that was cool. Uh, at one point in the drive back to Arizona, while the car was going full speed, they took a turn hard and Jip rolled out of the side of the car onto the road. But it was cool, he was Jip, so he ended up being fine. And it's like 1922 at this point. And if you think about it, we really haven't talked that much about Jackson. And it's mostly because nobody in this family really talked to him or about him except for Sandy. But there really is no Jackson Pollock story yet. This is Jackson Pollock's family story. He's just existing in it. And he's also been basically moving around his entire childhood. Kids need some sort of stability and identity, and he's not getting any of that. I grew up fourth-generation upstate New York, Giddy. That was my starting point. The food was delicious, but we'd pronounce it all wrong. We'd say Capacool and Monagot, and there were vacations to the Jersey Shore. I had really nice eyebrows. And you know what? At some point, you get older, and you change a little, and you take some things with you. You leave some things behind. It took me one time of feeling like an asshole at an Italian restaurant for ordering a canole for dessert. And the server looked at me like, what the fuck? And I was like, you know what? I'm putting that one down. But I'm definitely picking up the Friday night 10 p.m. showing of a horror movie in a predominantly black theater, and I am never letting go of that one. But it's not where I started from. And Jackson has no foundational identity from which to start, and he's just starting to lash out now. I realized the other day who he is. He is a white trash version of the son from the movie Parenthood. Not the little black kid named Cool. The other one. what's the matter? I lost my retainer! One time, Jackson shot and killed a woman's cat with a (laughs) rifle and then had a full-fledged emotional meltdown because he did something so awful. So, we've got some emotional modulation issues happening. And yes, more cat murder. If you miss Picasso's origin story, it happens there too, only with shotguns. It's beginning to be a very odd theme of the show, and if I bring you nothing, it's stuff about horses and cat murder. But Jackson is clearly showing signs of a lot of swirling emotion, and he doesn't know how to act on those emotions, and then he's having these overwhelming fits of shame and sadness. And instead of his older brothers trying to help him along, Frank and Sandy at this point were skipping school constantly and getting absolutely hammered on homemade moonshine called White Mule. And this is very risky drinking behavior, because sometimes back then moonshine would cause blindness and brain damage because it was distilled with radiators that sometimes contained lead. This story is so hillbilly right now. When I was a kid, you could tell the other kids that were white trash because they had that Kool-Aid smile on the corners of their lips and they were always dirty and misbehaved. And this is basically that same situation, except it's with buckets of lead infused radiator moonshine. Stella decided that her and the kids needed to move again. Why? Because they just need to. I have absolutely no idea. In September 1924, Stella moves the boys to Riverside, California and leaves Leroy behind in Arizona. And once they get to Riverside, Stella basically gave up on all parental duties. She sort of became a caretaker of the house who kept the you know the fridge stocked. All of her kids are alive and that is probably a statistical anomaly. They're all relatively functional for the time and she's been taking care of children since she's a kid herself. So she's finally getting to, to have a, a full life right now though it may be at the expense of her kids. In 1924, Riverside was a cultural hub of the West Coast. There was an excellent school system, it enjoyed a ton of tourism, and it was almost a resort town, and it's only about 50 miles from LA. Today, Riverside, California is still about 50 miles from LA, but none of that other stuff is true. Jackson and Sandy were basically functioning adults who lived with their mom. Jackson's about 13 at this point, which, to be fair, in 1925 years, he's basically a 35-year-old man. The boys found and stripped down an old Model T Ford so they were a little more mobile. And the timing of that was perfect because Leroy moved pretty close to Riverside at that point in 1925. He was a foreman on a work crew that was building roads, which was required because there were no goddamn roads back then. But even though Leroy was close enough to make the short drive, he would never actually make the drive to see Jackson or Sandy. The only time he would spend with them is if they came and hung out at the work camps and ate with him. So Jackson and Sandy would have to drive out and hang out with this ragtag group of 1920s western road construction weirdos, half of whom also probably abandoned their families. One of the workers was named Red, because of course there was going to be a guy named Red at some point in this story. Red decided the boys needed a little seasoning, and one day he took Jackson and Sandy on a day trip. At this time in the West, there were a ton of large herds of wild horses called Mustangs that would run around the West, just being free and animals and not hurting anybody, not trying to rape unsuspecting nine-year-olds from Schenectady. And by large herds, there was an estimated population then of around fifty to 150,000 wild mustangs. I think the fifty to 150,000 estimate was broad because everybody was an inbred idiot and ate cano beans and they couldn't count very high. But all of those wild horses weren't good for progress and being civilized and we needed to tame the West. But you can't just kill horses that are in the way. This is America, baby. You got to profit on that shit. Look out, America's coming again. And, of course, we built an entire industry around the slaughter of wild horses. In this instance, a meatpacking company built a corral so herds of wild horses could be trapped inside a nearby canyon and be, quote, processed. Red took the boys across the Kaibab Plateau and through the canyon and across the Cane Springs and it sounds like gorgeous country. took position as they heard the horses hooves echo throughout the canyon and the herd slowed down and approached a watering hole and the horses put their lips down to the cool clear water bam a fucking bullet rips off part of your head your brains are laying on the ground in little bloody pieces jackson sandy and red opened fire on a herd of wild horses because red took them on a mustang hunt you going hunting And with horse bodies just lying on the ground and the rest of the herd fleeing in fright, Red took the boys back. That was it. That was the trip. And I should have said the wild mustang population was down to around 100,000, because at one point, roughly 400,000 horses were killed in Montana alone. Last time we checked in on Jackson Pollock and horses, he was learning about sex. Now he's learning about death. Stella was still unsatisfied with where they lived and eventually planned on completing the family's move west to Los Angeles to join Charles and I believe Marvin slash Jay is also still there. So Stella's finally going to make it to the big city. That summer before everyone moved, Leroy arranged for the boys to work on a road crew like his. But not his. He arranged for them to work on someone else's road crew. I bet that one stung. Okay, here's the culture surrounding these road crews pretty simple, won't take that long to explain. They would do a massive amount of manual labor all day and then sit around a fire and drink all night. That's it. And Jackson was just desperate to be accepted by these people and would join them every night just tossing back shitty whatever moonshine garbage they were drinking. In the road crews, they loved to watch Jackson get drunk. It turned into like a form of entertainment for them, so they'd encourage him to keep drinking because Jackson was apparently an incredibly sloppy drunk. As soon as he would get drunk, he would apparently get to that point of stumbling around and acting like an idiot really quickly, and it happened with a noticeably small amount of alcohol. So every night for a summer in not-his-father's-work camp, he is getting staggeringly drunk and mocked more or less by Lenny and George of Mice and Men. if you want to know what's happening right now, this is straight up of Mice and Men ridiculousness. Jackson getting so hammered so quickly, Uh, apparently this is a real thing. In 2014, the National Institute of Health conducted a study on genetics and genomics of alcohol sensitivity. And it showed that some people with accumulation of genetic factors have a much more acute reaction to alcohol. There's not an alcohol sensitivity gene per se, it's a combination of genetic factors. So if it takes you six drinks to be a stumbling idiot, it takes these people like two. And it's very likely Jackson had some sort of genetic sensitivity to alcohol. But he didn't care that the whole work crew got him drunk and mocked him. He was just excited that other people were paying attention to him, that he finally felt like he belonged. And the fact that they're older men who have the same job as his father that just abandoned him, I can imagine that's tough on a 13-year-old. So Jackson is just desperate for approval and validation, and he's just willing to debase himself in front of these idiots to get it. After that summer, Jackson thought that he was going to have Sandy to rely on to always be around, but Sandy just met a girl named Arloy. Very nice girl, he was very into her, and they start dating, and that means Sandy has no time to hang out with Jackson. So it's just back to Jackson spending time with Jip, but he's at an age where it's now kind of weird. Like, when you're nine and it's just you and your dog, I get it, but at some point, yeah, people should be concerned. Frank was still around, but he was a senior in high school and he was planning on moving to New York. Years later, people would find out that old Frank the Tank was drinking excessively at this point. He was trying to get to that rolling brownout status at every possible turn. We're going streaky! And just before Frank moved to New York, he decided that good old Jip wasn't moving around as well as he used to, and he chloroformed Jip to death in the backyard. You know what, Frank? Fuck you. You're an asshole. I didn't like you from the beginning of this story. Now I know I still didn't give you a step because you chloroform dogs, Frank. And where do you even get chloroform? Who just has chloroform, Frank? You've never hurt anybody except for every living thing he came across. Jesus. Now that Jackson's dog has just been murked, Stella moves him and Sandy, to the remains of this ramshackle family, to Los Angeles. So let's take a second and recap. We've had a lot of stuff thrown at us. Uh, Jackson's only real connection, Sandy, is dating Arloy. Jay slash Marvin, Marvin slash Jay, is off. He's off living his life. We don't really know. Doesn't really matter. Uh, Charles recently moved to New York to be a working artist, and Frank is there now too. Possibly killing more dogs. We don't know. It's reckless speculation. And at this point, the only real contact Leroy has with Jackson is that he occasionally writes him letters. That's that's where their relationship is. Stella is done being a mother. Jip just got straight up smoked by drunk Frank. And when you're lost, and you don't know how to communicate or express yourself, and all this family strife has encompassed your entire existence, you need to go to a place that professionally chews people up and spits them out. High school. That's right, our boy's about to start high school. Now Jackson is going from arguably a bizarrely sheltered and isolated childhood to attending the Manual Arts High School, which was an enormous school of around 3,000 students. And Jackson, as you could probably guess, really didn't take too well to high school. To help ease himself with the transition, Jackson was drinking more and more, and he was doing it in secret. If you're hiding your drinking your freshman year of high school, that is not a good sign. He got very adept at making this, like, Pruno-style prison hooch with raisins and apple cider, and he would just get drunk at school all the time. And with his drinking, his irritability increased. He was just walking around frustrated and angry, but when he drank, all of that bubbled up to the surface, and he was just raging out more and more. One day at school, Jackson was extremely drunk, and he'd walk up to his phys ed teacher, and he just punched him in the face. He just cold-cocked his gym teacher for no reason. And I mean, granted, there was always a reason to punch a gym teacher in the face. We all just didn't do it. Jackson's only saving grace in high school was just next-level insane art teacher named Schwankowski. Schwankowski was one of those teachers who didn't follow any rules. He was a school's art director, and he was also a political radical, and he was very much into the spiritual movement. And all Jackson wanted to do was take Schwankowski's art classes, even though he was a terrible artist. People could tell that there was a lot of energy in his art, although he had absolutely no technical skill. I and mean, this is the complete opposite of Picasso's origin story. I mean, we're this far into episode 2 and we've barely scratched the surface on art. Schwankowski loved that Jackson was open to his experimental art style, and I think he could tell that the kid was sort of a mess, so he really took Jackson under his wing. Again, and I can't stress this enough, Schwankowski did this knowing that Jackson was just awful as an artist but Charles was an artist and he always wanted to be like Charles and deep down I think Jackson knew Stella loved art, so maybe everybody will love him if he becomes an artist. That's what I think is happening. It was in these art classes that Jackson also finally started to make his own friends, like another student named Manuel Toligian. Goddamn finally, Jackson has some sort of emotional bond to another human being. Thanks for joining the story, Manuel. I'm sure you won't regret it. And Schwankowski wasn't just an art teacher, he was also a spiritual advisor to these boys. He introduced the boys to social justice issues and was also politically impassioned. And Jackson was all in on the hot-button political issues, even though he really didn't understand them conceptually because it was people getting all emotional about a thing and it made him feel like he was part of something. So he'd just yell at people who didn't agree with him politically, but he'd just get super red-faced and say things like, shows how much you know, just feelings. But most importantly, Schwankowski also encouraged the boys to, quote, expand their consciousness, and he was fully into what he referred to as religious experimentation. He would tell his students all about different kinds of religions, prime the pump on spirituality, but he saved a really special religion for last. And Jackson is just wrapped with attention. He is just waiting on every word Schwankowski has to say. And he said if they really wanted to test their spiritualism and find the universal centeredness of truth or whatever, they would need to learn about theosophy, but only if they were ready. So right now, Jackson is a very emotionally troubled young man. He's getting prison-style pruno hammered constantly, and he punched that P.E. teacher in the face. Leroy's not only abandoned the family, but he's also actively avoiding seeing his sons by assigning them to different work crews. Stella's checked out. His brothers and his mind have all abandoned him. Frank murdered Jip. And when all hope is lost and you need something desperately to get you back on track, the answer, of course, lies in a higher power. Like I said, I come in the name of Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is, this ain't, I ain't playing with your ass. Don't call up and play with me. It was through Schoenkovsky that Pollock would eventually meet someone who would change his viewpoint on life. A charismatic young man named Krishnamurti, the Literally Perfect. Through the 1920s, America was immersed not just with westward expansion, but it was also going through a rapid growth spurt financially. It's the Roaring Twenties. And not at all because of that financial growth. By pure coincidence only, there was also a simultaneous staggering rise in religious groups. And obviously today, Los Angeles is your typical, predominantly liberal heathen environment. But even now, as soon as you get outside of Los Angeles, especially in neighboring Orange County, you are getting a hefty dose of Jesus. I mean, that's totally cool if that's what you're into. But if you are not into Jesus, you may not want to move to Orange County. They're buying $53 million jets for Jesus out there. You don't stand a goddamn chance not showing up to church. There was a writer and historian from the 20s named Louis Adamick who said about Southern California when he got here, quote, In spite of all the healthful sunshine and ocean breezes, It is a bad place because in the roaring 20s, Southern California was a hotbed for ultra evangelicals, Pentecostalists, faith healers, bizarre religions, and even cults. As these religious organizations began to grow rapidly, entrepreneurial people would create their own offshoots and be the leader of that new thing. It's like any organization that gets too big. Eventually, you need to branch out. It's almost as if people saw religion as a business. But to branch out and be successful, you need to do some new stuff, maybe work in some eastern philosophies, really make your bullshit yours. And obviously I'm joking around, if you're religious or spiritual, I say good for you, do whatever makes you happy. But not all of these religious movements were good. Sometimes they turned into communes where indoctrinations took place and the movement would evolve and the religious leader would be elevated to a godlike status, the cult of personality. One of the religious groups that sprung up in Southern California was the Theosophical Society, and Schwankowski was giving a very hardcore recruitment pitch. And I swear they're not a cult. Apparently today they're known as the Crotona Institute of Theosophy. Again, doesn't it all sound like a cult? That's right, they still exist. I don't want to get sued. So Theosophy and the Crotona Institute of Theosophy, guys, definitely not a cult. It's definitely the Theosophical Society was started in Los Angeles around 1912 by a woman named Madame Blavatsky. I know, it's already awesome, again, totally not a cult. But Los Angeles was apparently stifling the vibe Madame Blavatsky wanted, so the Theosophists eventually moved to Ohio, which is like an hour north of LA. And you may be asking yourself, what exactly is Theosophy? I still have no clue, so I'll just give you the pitch. Madame Blavatsky wanted to, quote, "...diffuse information concerning those secret laws of nature which were so familiar to the Chaldeans and Egyptians, but are totally unknown by our modern science." She wanted to then use Theosophy to unify science and religion in the quest for the single primitive source from which we can discover the new theory of evolution and from which all truth flows. At that point, the human condition naturally strives to use theosophy to reach the peak of existence known, of course, as the Universal Oversoul. And to help usher everyone into enlightenment in ohio there was a young charismatic leader who was considered the new messiah, the incarnation of God, the divine spirit, Krishnamurti, the literally perfect. With Krishnamurti the Literally Perfect so close to Los Angeles, there was no way Schwankowski wasn't gonna take the boys in a week-long retreat on Monday, May 27, 1929. There was no way that was gonna happen. Because why wouldn't we introduce a cult to this story? And now a very damaged, very lost young man will finally meet somebody who can guide him. After he pays the $45 entry fee, of course. Spiritual enlightenment isn't free, nor should it be. And that's not a joke, the fee for this thing was actually $45. Krishnamurti the Literally Perfect taught Jackson that everything comes from within. He said, quote, it is indeed those who suffer and struggle and not necessarily those who are learned in books that understand. And Jackson just ate that shit up. He said that inspiration was to be revered more than education and that a true test of an artist was to be able to bypass the intellect. And if someone is calling themselves the literally perfect and they're telling you to bypass your intellect, it's a cult. Get your $45 and get the fuck out of there. But instead, Jackson stuck around and for days learned from Krishnamurti the literally perfect in the compound. And he was a changed young man. He had more assertiveness, and he started to dress the same as a spiritual leader in these open button shirts and blazers. And Jackson even wore his hair like Krishnamurti the literally perfect, and he stopped eating meat. Jackson was finally getting a sense of self that just happened to be the replicated self of a cult leader. And because it was the summer, it was the perfect time to make sure he got himself assigned to his dad's work crew, spend the summer with Leroy and tell him all about theosophy and his spiritual growth from within. And with his new assertiveness, that's exactly what he did. And what started out as a conversation with Leroy about his new identity quickly turned into a heated argument, and then even quicker turned into a savage fist fight. So that went well. And then Jackson went back to L.A., completely shattered by his father's rejection, and he fell into a deep depression, and there was a lot of pruno being consumed. Because this is the first time he ever had a sense of identity, and the first time that he had the assertiveness to share it with Leroy. Hey, Dad, this is who I am. He gets rejected again, and then gets his ass beat. And this really is a turning point in our story for for a number of reasons, but most immediately it's because Jackson did a thing that I don't think he would have done earlier, which is reaching out to Charles in New York. He wrote him a letter and was basically spilling his guts and asking him for help. And for an older brother who never really seemed to care about Jackson, Charles was apparently extremely concerned by Jackson's letter. Because he wrote back immediately, copped to the fact that he hadn't been the best brother the whole time, and reminded Jackson, hey, you know, there's an out, didn't you want to be an artist? You should go to art school. And that snapped Jackson right back to reality. Of course, an artist, he was going to be an artist. That's what he always sort of wanted to be. That's exactly what Christian Murdy, the literally perfect, would want him to be. So Jackson dove right back into Manual Arts High School to finish his education. He's going to finish school strong and figure out how to be an artist. Then one day, the high school football team grabbed him up, dragged him to the bathroom, and forced his head into the toilet. And he handled it with the emotional and psychological aplomb that you would expect from our boy. He composed himself, sorta. Then he walked up to another of the P.E. teachers, Coach Sid Foster. Woo! Go Mustangs! And he punched him in the face. He's just flagrantly abusing the phys ed faculty. Just one by one, whistles and clipboards flying everywhere. What is happening? Anyway, after his second P.E. teacher assault, that was pretty much the end for Jackson's time at the manual art school. The faculty had had enough. Charles and Frank drove from New York, and they visited L.A., and they could immediately tell that Jackson was not in a good place. He's toilet-hooch-punching P.E. teachers, he fought Leroy, he's raging out and completely losing control. Charles had recently enrolled in the Art Students League, which was one of the first consolidated quality art schools in New York. It wasn't a school that also taught art, it was an artist-created, artist-run school. And one of their star teachers was an artist named Thomas Hart Benton, and he was also Charles's mentor. So Charles and Frank convinced Jackson to drive back to New York with them, and for Jackson to start taking classes at the Art Students League, and I'll just call it The League for short. And I'll remind you, Jackson is terrible at art, that hasn't changed. He can't even draw, it's kind of sad because he really wants to be an artist. So why not just move to New York and do a thing you're not very good at? I mean, I live in L.A. People are doing that daily here. So Jackson heads to New York with his brothers to fulfill his lifelong sort of dream of being an artist. Jim, Jim, jump is a jumping shot. Makes you like your eggs on the jersey. And the Roaring Twenties really built up New York. It was a bustling, skyscraper-filled city. There were construction left and right. There were cars all over the roads. So when Jackson gets there, it's a city full of possibilities and lots and lots of liquor. Maybe a level of bustle that a scared little boy from a desert farm might have problems adapting to. And all of that hope dims a little bit because the market crashed and the country is now, in the fall of 1930, headed into the Great Depression. But Jackson's still pretty insulated from the Depression right now. He's sleeping on Charles's couch, and he's taking art classes at the League with Thomas Hart Benton. And immediately, Jackson knew that his goal was to overtake Charles as Benton's prize pupil. Even though Jackson was still a god-awful artist, there's a new father figure to try to please. Benton said of Jackson's art studies when he first arrived at the League, quote, Absolutely incapable. He couldn't be taught anything. Manuel Tolijian, uh Jackson's buddy from back west, his high school friend, he also moved to New York to take classes at the league, and he quickly surpassed Jackson in talent. Everybody did, because he was garbage, and the more inadequate Jackson felt at the league, the more frustrated he got and the more he drank. He still didn't know how to talk to people. Benton one time said, quote, he developed some kind of language block and became almost completely inarticulate. I have sometimes seen him struggle, to red-faced embarrassment while trying to formulate ideas boiling up in his disturbed consciousness. Really, that's a pretty messed up way for your mentor to explain, you know, how you think and process your words. And given that this is Jackson's new mentor, we should probably talk about Thomas Hart Benton. And really, we haven't talked a whole lot about art in general so far this series, and that sort of tracks with art in America in general at this point. There's just not a whole lot to talk about. The Western art world was almost predominantly in Europe at this point, mostly in Paris. Benton was at the head of what was really the first art movement that was born out of America. It was called regionalism, and regionalism was the first art movement to capture distinctly American scenes and themes. The paintings would depict small American towns, rural images, images that were becoming iconic of America. It was spearheaded by Grant Wood, John Stuart Curry, and Thomas Hart Benton. Grant Wood is the artist that painted American Gothic. Uh, that's the old farm couple and the guys holding the pitchfork. That's the kind of stuff I'm talking about. But Thomas Hart Benton was not the most talented of the regionalist painters. But he was the best at self-promotion and was very passionate. Basically, he was kind of a blowhard. He was also very good at being able to tap into the political and social zeitgeist. And he also borrowed heavily in technique from another art movement at the time called muralism, and this was a Mexican art movement that we'll get into more next episode. The muralism movement would have a huge influence on the New York scene and would open up a bunch of jobs during the Great Depression as well. There were three major Mexican muralist painters, uh, Diego Rivera, David Alfaro Siqueiros, and Jose Clemente Orozco. And the Mexican murals were extremely large works that were often painted on enormous canvases or the side of buildings, and that's a technique that the American artists started to adopt. And even though Benton wasn't a game-changing art talent, it did take a certain skill to paint such large works, even logistically, and Benton could do that. He could competently paint a very large mural, and he could do it in a pretty expedient fashion. I'll post an example on the show's Instagram of a Thomas Hart Benton mural. There's one he completed for Indiana University in 1933, which I believe is now up in the Indiana University auditorium, and the murals depict the social and industrial history of Indiana, and they're like 12 feet high and 250 feet long. It's pretty crazy. Benton was was a social progressive on race issues, so he refused to whitewash Indiana's history, and he painted into one of those panels the image of the KKK burning a cross, Sorry, Indiana, the Klan is an iconic part of your history. Benton was also described as profane, drunk, vulgar, a misogynist, and quick to anger. In this all fit with Jackson, he loved this guy. He even had a natural pull towards Benton's misogynistic side. And much like Jackson had an issue with Stella's lack of affection and controlling nature, Benton also had a bit of a problem with his mother, Lizzie. Lizzie was a religious fanatic, and she considered sex to be a plain manifestation of the devil and was a nasty thing that had to be put up with in marriage. She was always screaming at her husband and told a young Thomas that if he masturbated at night, he would die in his sleep and go to hell. And of course, she was constantly admonishing Thomas for what she considered to be his sissy behavior. So when Thomas Hart Benton came into prominence in the 30s, he would take up the mantle of decrying sissy behavior. He raged out in these crazy profanity-laced rants about how art in New York is run by, quote, a pack of precious ninnies who walked with a hip swing in their gates and affected a certain kind of curve in their wrists. You know... Benton also thought that the feminine figure in art, which had always been popular for so long, should be wiped out in favor of drawing masculine figures with very masculine lines, belying a quiet strength. In his mind, the only people who can truly understand the torment, the beauty, the roiling, tumultuous angst of creating art were men. But a certain kind of man, a... I want a broad-shouldered, barrel-chested man with... With chest hair, not too much chest hair, not poofy chest hair from the 80s, but like a trim, trim chest hair. I also want a strong jawline and and supple lips. A man whose hands are calloused yet soft. A man who can make you feel safe and protected in his powerful arms, but also cared for and loved. This, this is the kind of man I want deep, deep inside of the arts. When it came to women who were taking his art classes, Benton would straight up ignore them completely, and he would rail against the, quote, pansies, and even the most casual touch from a man would turn him into a yelling homophobe. But when it came to rustic young men and the beauty of Italian peasant boys, he would scoff and say, quote, who wouldn't be attracted to them? So let's call this what it obviously is. Benton is pretty gay. He's got, like, an Italian twink thing happening. He knows his wheelhouse. It's a little specific. You might want to stretch it out a little bit to maybe some Greek twinks or some Turkish twinks. But, I mean, you know, hey, you're going to have delicious Italian food if they cook for you. Gnocchi. In Italian slang, also mean handsome guys. But instead of bathing himself in rustic little gnocchi like he wants, he got married to a woman named Rita. And I think that's what you did back then. I think a lot more marriages were marriages of convenience, especially in this kind of situation. The only way people considered you quote-unquote normal is if you were married. Otherwise, they would shun you, and you, you definitely can't come out at a time like this. It, it would definitely ruin them professionally, and it's probably dangerous to do so. Over time, Benton begins to take Jackson more and more under his wing. Manuel Tollegian, Charles, everyone would hang out at the Benton's house with, you know, Thomas and Rita, and Jackson was helping Benton on some of his larger projects. When Benton would receive a commission for a large mural in New York, Jackson would be one of his assistants. And this was fine for Jackson, because a lot of this work didn't really include creating art. You would just help out with the paint and scaffolding. It was logistic stuff. It was more like an internship. And Jackson began to overtake Charles as Benton's favorite, mostly because Charles is trying to work and he doesn't have this weird desire to please. And also he met a nice young woman named Elizabeth. So now that Elizabeth and Charles are dating, Charles can't just hang around this weird apartment with all these art students. Jackson also loved spending time with Benton's wife, Rita. She was a younger woman, but was very maternal towards him. She was for sure fulfilling the emotional void that Stella left. She really cared for him, made sure he was fed, and Jackson was definitely trying to fulfill both his mommy and daddy issues with the Bentons. Thomas Benton's relationship with Rita was, let's call it excessively misogynistic and hyper-masculine, because he was really trying hard to be that big bad heterosexual guy. He would get super drunk and do that thing where you'd scream from the other room, like, when's dinner ready? Like, that kind of hokey nonsense. He'd yell at Rita in front of company. He was a total dick to her. But of course, as you would imagine, she completely ran shit behind the scenes. She gave up her own dreams of being an artist to run Benton's business, so she works with the dealers, the wholesalers for supplies, she makes sure he makes deadlines... She's basically responsible for his entire functionality as an artist and Jackson is sitting back and taking note of this. He's like, "Ah, oh, so that's what women should do. In June of 1931, Jackson and Manuel Tollegian decided they wanted to hitchhike from New York to Los Angeles, which is a bold choice. And this trip was probably pushed by Benton, who had done similar trips in the 20s. That's how he experienced the real America. After World War I, our identity was starting to grow as a country, and these trips west for him, they were inspirations for his contributions to regionalism. And hitchhiking west in the Roaring Twenties was easy. Everybody was going west, so people would just walk on the few major highways headed west, stick out their thumbs, and eventually you'd get a ride. So Jackson and Manuel thought this was going to be a great adventure, and they'd learn all about America, and they could start their own great American art movement. But when Benton took his trips across America, there were more cars than hitchhikers. That changed because of the Great Depression, and Jackson and Manuel had no idea. They were so isolated in art school that they weren't really experiencing the Depression yet. So Jackson and Manuel started their hitchhiking adventure west. But as soon as they hit Cleveland, they hit max capacity and other people coming west, and Cleveland turned into this drifter bottleneck situation. As unemployment skyrocketed and there were fewer and fewer job opportunities in cities, people just took the risk and went west, hoping to find work or hoping to start their lives over. But once you hit Cleveland, hitchhiking became a problem because people outnumbered roads. Everyone realized that when they hit Cleveland, they weren't the only ones that fled west in this desperate attempt to find some sort of life. At one point, there were upwards of 2 million people who were on the roads hitchhiking west. It was this wandering population on the side of the road, and you would wait for hours and whole families around the road trying to catch rides. So finally, Jackson and Manuel stopped and decided to reassess. Jackson wanted to hop on a freight train, but Manuel didn't want to try to hop onto a moving train, and he'd also heard that once you were on it, it was not a safe environment. Jackson thought it would be fine and that it would be in and of itself an adventure, so him and Manuel split ways and decided to meet up in Los Angeles. And Jackson, after always being the little boy who needed to be taken care of, decided this was his growing up moment and he wanted to have an adventure. This was the time where he was going to just take the world head on. Depression era freight train travel. It's exactly what you would imagine it would be. all the time. He made freight train down the line. The term hobo was first introduced into American English around 1890. The etymology is debated. Uh, It may have been an abbreviation for homeward bound, or it may have been derived from the term hoboy, which was a term for a farmhand. Regardless, it's a very fun word to say, hobo. But hobo was a very specific term back then. It was used to describe a homeless and impoverished migrant worker that always traveled looking for work. There were also bums, who didn't work at all, and tramps, who were people that only worked when they had to. In the 30s, there were more than 2 million male and an estimated 8,000 female hobos traversing the country in order to find farming jobs out west. The fastest way, and oftentimes the only way to get west, was to illegally hop on a freight train. And there were a lot of people illegally riding trains. In order to combat the illegal hobo riders, railroad companies tried everything possible to prevent them from getting on the trains, including hiring bulls who were guards that would patrol the railways and ensure only paying customers were on the trains. To accomplish that, they would often savagely beat and sometimes kill people who weren't supposed to be there. Because of the danger posed by the bulls, hobos would often hide along the tracks until the train was moving, then they'd run alongside the train as it gained speed and they'd jump into open boxcars. A lot of times they missed, and many of the hobos lost legs that were crushed under the train wheels, and a lot of them died. One year, over 6,500 hobos were killed in either train accidents or straight up murdered by bulls. This would be like if you were beaten half to death by an Amtrak employee because you didn't have your ticket ready. These were just private employees of a company. And as he hopped onto a freight train outside of Cleveland, Jackson Pollock entered the world of hobo boxcar drifters. Now, I know I said a while ago that I was concerned with what people's mouths smelled like in the 1870s, but imagine what 1931 boxcar drifter hobo mouths smelled like. It was horrifying. Jackson was now in the turf of people who, quote, Eat from blackened tin cans, steal one day, beg with cap and hand the next, fight with fists and often razors, and hold sexual intercourse under a blanket in a dark corner of a crowded car. That crowded boxcar environment? That was called the jungle. So you have a lot of desperate, often very indigent people, many with mental illness, a lot of whom have criminal records. And during the Great Depression, when everybody is indigent, you're now in a lower rung of a ladder, which is that you don't even have a city to be poor in. And you're constantly on the run, constantly being chased by bulls. And then all of these people were then placed in small, enclosed areas for long periods of time that they can't escape, because at 60 miles an hour, physics is sort of cruel to the human body, and sometimes a train might not stop for days. So while these people aren't incarcerated by law, what was created by circumstance was basically an environment that's similar to prison. It's functionally the same social construct. This was straight up prison rules. And the most dangerous men in the trains, they were referred to as wolves. And if you were what they called lambs, they would find out very quickly. And on the scale of wolves to lambs, where do you think Jackson Pollock fell? Listen to the steel rails humming, that's a hobo's lullaby. Manuel Toligian lucked out, and he caught some long hitchhiking rides, so when he and Jackson separated, Manuel actually made it to Los Angeles in like five days. When Jackson reached L.A. at the end of June, he was, quote, a physical wreck, and all of his hair had been chopped off, and it took him about a week to recover from the trip when everyone asked him about the train ride, he said, quote, my trip was a peach. Only years later would he acknowledge what happened on those trains. He was repeatedly boxcar hobo raped. He never said it explicitly or went into detail. Uh, Close friends and family had to piece together from snippets of what he said over the years, and there there were a lot of context clues. But he implied that it happened a lot and that it was not consensual. So yeah, it's highly likely that Jackson Pollock's first sexual experience was boxcar drifter hobo rape, which is, which is really just a lot to process. And as you can imagine, this has a lasting impact on him. So let's pick the story back up next episode. As awkward as shit as it is to say, repeated boxcar hobo rape is probably a natural breakpoint for us. Because honestly, this story only gets crazier. So I appreciate everybody tuning in, and I will talk to everyone next week. Tomorrow come and go, tonight you've got a nice warm boxcar car save from all this wind and snow.